Today, we discuss Miro. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now, uh uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, gathering information. You get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. That's M-I-R-O.com. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. I'm Tim Whitaker, and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hey friends, welcome back. Another episode of the podcast. Happy Monday to you. This is a holiday weekend for a lot of people. You're probably traveling to see family. So I'm bringing you this episode with Russell Moore, maybe to help you think about how to talk to some of them. I hear from a lot of you that you get anxiety seeing your family. Some of them are way into the Trump and Christian nationalism stuff. And Russell Moore is someone who is a conservative evangelical but is strongly against Christian nationalism. And actually, this is why I make a point to say often that just because you're con- you're a conservative, maybe politically or theologically, does not automatically make you a Christian nationalist. Russell wrote a book recently. It's called Losing Our Religion, an Ultra Call for Evangelical America. I'm holding it up here on the screen for those of you watching. It's a great read. I mean, it's a great read. Russell is very articulate. He's very well-informed. He studies deeply. I can appreciate that. I can appreciate people who I know, and we all know me and Russell, and probably you and Russell have some strong disagreements on a lot of things, but I appreciate his charity. I I appreciate his willingness to engage conversation, his willingness to advocate for a free society for all people, and also someone who's been quite the advocate in organizations like the SBC for quite a long time, um, decrying the whole Trump takeover, and also standing up for survivors that um, that were greatly harmed at the hands of the SBC, which actually cost him his position there. So 
I really enjoyed this episode with, with Russell. I think it's a really good one, very thought provoking, and I really appreciated him coming on. I hope that you enjoy it. Would love your feedback on this one as always. And of course, friends, thank you so much for listening to the show. I hope that 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 this podcast is helping you when it comes to finding better ways forward in your faith. That's the whole goal here, right? I mean, from from the beginning when I first started TNE in my attic on an Instagram account, it was all about are there better ways forward when it comes to our allegiance to Jesus? And that's what we're trying to do. So thank you for listening. If you want to support the work that we do, you can like this show, you can give us a rating, you can share it with a friend, that would be great. And of course, as a nonprofit organization, we are completely dependent on donors to make this work possible, completely paywall free. So I really appreciate all of you who do donate. We have over 500 monthly donors and we are looking to double that by end of the year. We'll be announcing more um, about that soon and why we need um, more financial ability to do the work that we see that needs to happen. So that's coming up soon, so hang tight for that. All right, friends, without further ado, here is the interview. Talk to you all later on. Hi, my name is Tanuska and I'm from Denver, Colorado. I'm also a really proud TNE donor. What brought me to TNE is the ability to be in a space where I can ask good, hard questions about my faith and not feel judged and also feel spurred on to ask even more questions and to sit in my own um, maybe discomfort and also to make space for nuance. So I love TNE and I'm proud to be a supporter. All right, uh, Russell Moore, take two, because technology can be difficult to work with. It is good to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making time. I really appreciate it. Oh, glad to. So this is the second time I've had you on the podcast. We talked a long time ago. It was a fascinating conversation. And you're back. You have a brand new book out that we're going to dig into. Before we do that, I would love for you to give the audience a little intro, just who you are and what you currently do. Well, I'm a a minister and a teacher. I live in the Nashville area and I'm editor-in-chief at Christianity Today. And uh, prior to that, I've uh, served in various roles as a professor and a denominational entity person, whatever you would call it, and uh, several other things. Yeah. I mean, listen, you have a pretty... You have a pretty uh, wide background. You've done a lot of things. And the newest book that you just wrote is called Losing Our Religion. I remember you promoting it a little while ago. I thought, ooh, this is an interesting title. So I picked it up and I got to say, like, I'm pretty much all the way through it, which, you know, again, having two kids um, is impressive for me under two and trying to do all this work. I was very proud of myself. But I really honestly, you know, I don't say this super often, but your book was incredibly easy to read, but also like just full of a lot of things that I thought, even though I'm not really so much a, maybe a conservative Christian these days, I still found incredibly thought provoking and gave me a lot of things to think about. So I really appreciate you taking this, this topic head on. Thank you. Thank you. So why don't we start here? I mean, why don't you give us the premise of the book and then why this book? Why this book now? What was the reason for it? You, you can write whatever you want. You're, you're a well-known author. Why did you take on this topic? Well, largely because I found myself having the same conversation over and over and over again. And the unique thing about it is everybody that I would talk to felt like they were the only one going through that uh, conversation. (laughs) And so the way I work, um, I really don't know what I think about something until I kind of work through it, uh, either 
by yeah. teaching or writing. And so that's that's really what uh, what prompted it. I think one of the things that was most powerful right away with your book is your introduction kind of tells your own story of just like where you started, you know, going through a really difficult season of life, we can say. I just really, I think it sounds like for you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seemed incredibly disorienting based on your tradition and where you were and then what happened. Is that kind of the case? Can you kind of unpack that for us a little bit? It, it was disorienting and it was it was disorienting in a way uh, that was unique for me because I would have a mental uh, process to go through it and a cognitive process that would be something completely different than what was going on kind of deeper uh, in and, and kind of at the more uh, limbic level. And so that was was really disorienting and then you add to it and in this i don't think i'm i don't think i'm unique at all um you have all kinds of friendships and networks and so forth that are changed and you know that 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 added up to something that was was really uh disorienting and uh grief filled i think and just to clarify for the audience, your role at one point was the ethics like president over the SBC. Is that correct? Uh, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And uh, would, you know, I, I'm still Baptist enough to say not over the SBC. The SBC oh, okay. is <laughs> each, each church is autonomous, uh, but Fair. for the SBC, yeah. <laughs> okay. So you were in this role for quite a long time. I mean, even before I started this work, I, I knew your name and knew that you were in that role. And I remember for me, um, and it's interesting to hear how this, it's interesting to see how the impact of the past uh, six to seven years have impacted so many people in so many, in such a common yet unique way, right? Because while I was watching yeah. in my own local tradition, this kind of Trump thing happen and you know, I tell people often it was just very bizarre for people who raised me on a very strict sexual ethic to be mad at me because I couldn't vote for this guy. I was like, guys, I mean, he's on the cover of Playboy. Right. You you taught me that. And it was it was bizarre. I remember yeah. I remember actually reading you made a statement at some point during that you know early Trump days. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, thank you. Like, I'm I'm not alone. I even felt seen by that. But it sounds like based on your introduction in the book, like that set something in motion for you that ended up, you know being really hard to, to deal with, frankly. Yeah. And I, I knew, uh, I knew that this would be a controversial and a problem. And I think probably if you had asked me in 2015, um, if you had told me, first of all, that Donald Trump would be elected, that we would go through all of the things that we've gone through over the past several years, <laughs> Same, I probably right. would have been able to predict uh, some of the uh, some of the issues and some of the problems. So I, I knew that it wasn't that I thought, um, well, everybody's going to be on board with me on this. I just sure. felt like I had to um, I had to say something and to equip people in a different way who wanted to be equipped in a different way and also to speak to the outside world uh, about this with what I, I thought was a consistent ethic. And similar to you, um, a, a, a lot of it, I mean, it was just what 
it was just Sunday school level. I mean, it wasn't like you had to you had to go through right. a bunch of intricate uh, political science and philosophy to be able to figure out. No, this is <laughs> this is wrong. Uh, I think what did yeah. surprise me, and I think what surprised uh, a lot of people, is I really believed that there would be a moment when normal would return. And so mm. uh, at one point that was after Access Hollywood, and I was saying to uh, people uh, around me, you know, look, help people. A lot of people have been supporting uh, Trump. They're going to be really um, grief stricken and, you know, don't don't do the I told you so help people to well. There was no need uh, to, to do that. And I even thought, OK, after the yeah. election, we'll we'll have a time where it's really awkward and weird. But people will people will resume back to the the pre-2015 era. And I think a lot of people thought that and now have seen that that's just not the case. Well, you mentioned in one of the chapters in your book, this story where you were at some event and a woman asked you to pray for her daughter and you're kind of going through all the things of what it possibly could be, you know, maybe like something yeah. egregious happened or maybe she was, you know, um, uh, pregnant outside of marriage, something like that. Right. And you're kind of going down the list and it turns out that the reason she asked you to pray for her daughter is because on, on the back of her car was a bumper sticker, which again, you thought maybe it was something like coexist, which, okay, I, I guess I'll pray for you. But the, the bumper sticker said any sane functioning adult for president, you know, <laughs> 2020 or yeah. whatever year it was. And you were like, Oh, like that is the, that's what is the emergency in the situation. Talk to me about that experience a little bit more and like, and what that signifies for you now in 2023. Well, I mean, it's several things. I mean, the first thing I thought was, how did we get to this point where we see a bumper sticker that says, I want a sane, functional person. And your thought is you're attacking my guy. I mean, that, yeah, that, that's just a, a very odd uh, sort of a, a situation. Um, and then secondly, it was because uh, it it tracks with what's happening all over the place where you have people who are seen as uh, heretics or uh, seen as outside of the uh, tribe, not because they differ on some theological issue, although I would argue at the deeper level it is theological, but uh, not because they disagree on some theological issue or uh, because they're uh, behaving in some way that's disappointing, but simply because they're not lining up in this political uh, sort of area. And I, I, I just, I see that all over the place. And I see it with, you know, one of the things that I don't see very often are people who don't line up with this stuff and who want to uh, burn their connections with people who do. I, mm. I, I rarely see that. And I've been looking for that. It's almost always the other way. And um, and so that's one of the reasons why you have a lot of grief uh, from some people. It's because it's not that they are, are saying, oh, well, I want to I want to torch my relationship with my home church or with my extended family or whatever. They really do want uh, that connection, but they're now outside of the flock and they didn't change. Yes. You know, and that's. That's especially true often when you're looking at 
Um, I see this a lot. It does. It doesn't even have to do entirely with uh, with Trump, but I see situations where there are people who have young adult children, and the parents are uh, kind of scared and angry about uh, secularization and so forth outside in the world, and they're anxious about that, angry about that, and raging about that. And their young adult children are looking at all of this and saying, well, if that's what Christianity is, then I must not be a Christian. I must be something else. And you have to say, don't you know, you're actually fueling secularization in in all kinds of ways because uh, people can see that for for what it is, that kind of fear and anger is a lack of confidence. Uh, it, it's mm. just, it's a lack of confidence in what you believe and in the power of that. And that's kind of the, one of the many cruel ironies in this time. Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another 100 meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. Yeah, it is interesting because I did grow up in an environment that was very much, you know, we want to homeschool to protect you know, our kids from the world and we don't want to secularize. And I think a lot of people that I engage with now, maybe even listening to this podcast, eventually got on the other side of that. We're like, oh, first off, this world is not nearly as scary as I was led to believe, number one. Uh, number two, some of the people I'm meeting who aren't Christians seem to be at least more morally involved in their communities than who I've met, number two. That's weird. And then I think that this, just for lack of a better term, this Trumpism thing that's kind of taken over so many you know, spaces that maybe we used to be a part of, like you said, further solidified, like, wait, so it wasn't maybe about integrity or principle because you're obviously doing things that are incredibly now secular or or antithetical to the way of Jesus, like, you know, promoting yeah. things that aren't true or whatever it would be. And I do think a lot of people look and we go, yeah, if this is what Christianity is. Get me out of here because it doesn't seem very healthy in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And, and I think also if you look at the secularization that's uh, that's going on. I mean, it's it, what worries me the most is the secularization that is happening in the church to people who think they're opposing secularization. And mm. uh, that's especially true in terms of the secularization of spiritual warfare language. Um, because you just like, you know, you could have had a, a modernist pastor in 1920 saying, I believe in the resurrection. What the resurrection means is that you can have a new start in your life. You know, OK, well, that's that's not 
the resurrection, creedly defined. <laughs> uh, you have people who are using spiritual warfare language, which is uh, explicitly throughout the New Testament uh, said to be not about people, not about flesh and blood, yes. the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, but often that spiritual warfare language is used in terms of these things that seem much more immediate. And I find that really dangerous spiritually to the person. I also find it really dangerous uh, societally because demons are not redeemable. And when you demonize people, you you start to see them as being um, wholly evil, irredeemable. Uh, and And that's... I mean, that's that's what we used to call theological liberalism. Taking mm. taking biblical categories and just re uh, reworking them into something that is a a means to an earthly end, and that is informed and defined by what the immediate uh, uh, culture is around a person. And so, a lot of times, there there. Or warnings. I had these warnings all my life uh, growing up, and and uh, I know many evangelicals have against um, not being conformed to the culture. And I I, I think yeah. that's true. That's that's a uh, that's an issue in every generation. Be not conformed to the world. There are assumptions in the ambient culture that you can just pick up without even knowing that you're doing it. But that works with subcultures too. And so it it's not it's not just one thing, and uh, and and the problem is, at least for me, my problem is I actually take the church seriously. I think that it it is what it claims to be uh, a, a demonstration of uh, the coming kingdom of God, um, a yeah. bearer of the presence of God, and so that means. That it matters what what is right. happening. I mean, if it, if it's for just another sort of um, voluntary gathering of people, then you could just say, "Oh, who cares?" and just move on. But that's not what we believe the church to be, and so that that makes it all the more dangerous and important, in my view. You know, if you and I were sitting down and getting a cup of coffee or whatever else you might want to or not drink. I'm not really a beer guy these days, but if we were talking and really got into it, we'd probably find a lot of things that we would maybe see differently and whatever. But the one thing I've always appreciated about you is that I think that that even someone who is a consistent so-called conservative Christian or evangelical arrives at that conclusion. And I think that's what's frustrating to me is like, I'm trying to find other language than conservative for what I'm witnessing in real time happen in some of these, I'm calling them right now, far right, like theological and political spaces. Like there are people online, I'm not going to name them for sake of platforming them, but I follow them on Twitter. I'm like, what, like, honestly, what gospel are we talking about here? Like I need clarification because the, the list of what you think a good Christian is, is like, where are we on this? Right. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I know that you see these people. I know some of them take shots at you all the time. It, and I, I, before I, you answer, let me just preface, I wrestle with not trying to say, oh, they're not real Christians, because I feel like that absolves us the responsibility of acknowledging that Christianity can be 
at times not healthy. Um, at the same time, sometimes they say things and I'm like, gee, I just don't know what Bible you're reading or what creeds you're thinking about. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't I don't usually say uh, people are not real Christians, uh, re- regardless of whether they're in in some direction that I find unhealthy left or right, uh, because right. I mean, for one thing, I mean, I'm not going to add things to, uh, the gospel. I think that's, that's dangerous, but also because I have seen a lot of people who just sort of wake up and say, wait, what am I doing? And who just really didn't know that that they're that they're kind of being swept in a certain direction and i've kind of seen, i mean honestly i think one of the things that probably helped me the most in that and i say all the time the thing that prepared me the most for everything was youth ministry it would do being a youth minister early in my uh ministry and it it was that a lot of the people that i just kind of was almost on the verge of giving up on and would have just said, "Ah, oh, they're just they're they're gone." Have have turned out to be uh, the godliest, most responsible uh, people, and a lot of the people that I thought, "Oh, this is somebody who is really going to turn the world upside down for Jesus," have not. So I think there's I think sometimes you have people who are who are coming uh, coming to themselves at a at a later point, and I and I I want to give them the ability to do that. I think we we need sure. the on-ramps or off-ramps uh, for people because I think one of the things that's really, that's really kind of characteristic of this time is there's a sense of, well, if you, if you, it's, it's not enough that I persuade you that you're in, you're thinking something wrong or, or saying something wrong. It's not even enough if you change your mind. Unless you're able to retroactively get in a time machine and uh, go to where you've always held that view, then you're you're just you're just giving up on. And that happens. That's happening right now in the uh, secular world as well, in sort of the political uh, space as well as it is in the theological space. And I I just I've seen I've seen some counterexamples that I want to hold out hope for. I think that's wise. I mean, we often say that we want to have a posture of invitation for people to do better. Like we're all learning. I'm learning. I'm not who I was a few years ago. And I certainly wasn't mm-hmm. convinced by being called names online. That wasn't what persuaded right. me to change my mind. People, frankly, yeah. they held space for me. They were able to just, you know, be there and say, hey, I, I hear you, but have you considered this? Right. I I agree with you on that. I think what I'm wrestling with, I would love your wisdom here is you know, at some point, I do feel like there is this like uh, almost competing sense of I always want to make sure that people can always, you know, turn around and repent, so to speak. But also mm-hmm. when some of those people are so committed, right, to maybe p- particular p- ways of thinking politically that really seem at this point blatantly anti-democratic and and more mm-hmm. authoritarian, I wrestle with yeah. like, well, how do you resist that without making them more extreme, but also standing up and saying, sorry, I'm going to do whatever I can to oppose this because of the risk that you pose to our neighbors. Well, I mean, that I think we have to do. 
And so I, I think there's a difference between uh, saying, at least in the way I try to to work through it, there's a difference between saying he's not a Christian and that is not Christian. Uh, mm. It's because I don't I don't know what's going on in somebody's heart, even if I've got some really high intuitions in some way or the other. I don't really know, but I do know, I do know, uh, ideas that are, uh, dangerous and out of step with the spirit of Jesus. And I do think we have to say that. And I think that's part of the problem is that you have, um, you have sort of the, for, for lack of a better word, the normies, uh, in, in America and in, uh, the church who tend to think, if we just don't notice this, then it will eventually just magically go away and we can resume. And so it's it's kind of like uh, somebody falling down on a stage coming to get an award or something. If you, you just you don't bring it back up, just uh, keep going. <laughs> but that's not how this works. And mm-hmm. and that, I mean, the difficulty, though, um, the difficulty is there's a um, there's a business model uh, involved in extreme rhetoric that I mean there are all kinds of things that I used to worry about that I look back and say oh Bambi if only you had that to worry about now so for instance <laughs> yeah. there was a time I remember I had a, a student one time who said, uh, I think the Lord is leading me to be a megachurch pastor. And I remember thinking, oh, come on. And <laughs> and I was saying, you know, you, you can't be uh, seeking out uh, numbers for the sake of numbers and building churches that way. I actually long for the uh, men in ministry, particularly usually men uh, in ministry, who uh, aspire to uh, preaching and church growth, because uh, often instead what you have is an aspiration to being a troll. And the way you do that is you find the most extreme thing that you can possibly say, because you know that uh, everybody's going to quote tweet that uh, or or whatever platform social media it's on, and to say, can you believe this? And that you know that's that's part of the whole the whole model for that. So it's ha- sometimes hard to know how specifically to deal with that uh, part of it because there are often times when um, responding to something that that one sees is 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 exactly what somebody wants to happen to sort of build and make their brand, and yet. Uh, if you really care about these people and and about the people they're influencing, you have to differentiate from that. So that's sometimes the, the part that's hard. Today, we discuss Miro. Listen, when it comes to running client workshops, the dream, of course, is to get those creative juices flowing, right? But typically what ends up happening is thousands of hours get wasted because of poorly facilitated meetings. So I have Maya with me today. She's a consultant who runs Fortune 100 workshops from leadership training to team building, and she has the insider tip on what makes things work. Maya? Thank you, Jason. I've been doing this a long time. My number one tip is to bring everyone into the that visual collaboration platform. 
So personally, I use Miro and it's completely changed how I interact with the room. You have to give people a way to feel like they're in the room even when they're not. That's something you can do easily in Miro. Otherwise, they've seen the same slides and format a thousand times. Falling asleep, eyes glazing over, yawns, all that. Exactly. When people follow me on the Miro board, everyone is literally going on a journey with me. We're adding thoughts, we're reacting, and we're voting for the best ideas. It's great. Connective magic. I like it. That's M-I-R-O.com. I I would agree with you. I, I think as I've been doing this work more and more, I've uh I've been a little more thoughtful and like, okay, what video am I responding to? Why are we sharing it? You know, is this to you know maybe show a problem or am I just giving this person what they want, which is more views and likes? So one or two people hear and think, oh, maybe this guy's actually onto something. And I I'm not sure it was David French, but someone recently wrote an article about like just how there is a bubbling up of like a younger uh like far right kind of movement happening online that is usually white men uh who are just yeah. like trying to say the most outlandish i mean people like 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 nick fuentes for example is he's the easiest one to talk about you know who just say things and yeah. probably believe them uh things are just incredibly anti-inflammatory uh, and then people like that in meaning in this case nick sit down with the former sitting president for dinner and no one bats an eye and you know, he's the president's like, oh, I didn't know who he was. It's like, wait, that guy advocates for things that are like we're talking like Holocaust level denying things that are problematic. Yeah. here. So I do agree with you on that, with like how we how we navigate those kinds of things that are seem to only be kind of be growing. Well, and you add to that. And and David French did write that article. He, he was uh, over here last night. We were talking about uh, well, we were we were at dinner somewhere and we were talking about this uh very phenomenon and what i said was the surprising thing to me is you know i used to kind of roll my eyes at the cliche uh hate cliches pulpit cliches because we, for all the reasons but often they yeah. often they're cliches for a reason uh because they get mm-hmm. at something and so i would always sort of uh, how many times are we going to hear the frog in the kettle? Uh, and yet there is a, a real truth to that. And we've, we've ended up in a situation where I said, you know, I just don't think um, if I had said in 2015, this is going to be the problem and, and listed out the, the stuff, everybody would have said, you're absolutely insane i mean come on calm down uh and one of those things is to say you know we've had all these revelations in recent days of people that i already thought how do you get anything done you're online all the time and then you realize they also had another secret identity online presence that was explicitly nazi or white supremacist or whatever whatever it is right and it's not just like yeah this happens one time this just is happening exactly. over and over and over again. Um, I was saying to uh, a former Bush administration official the other day, I mean, you, you can't even imagine whatever anybody thinks of George W. Bush or Dick Cheney. Uh, nobody could imagine kind of secret Nazis uh, being revealed. And uh, this person said, uh-huh. yeah, as a matter of fact, if you were uh, somewhere screaming at somebody in a in an argument uh, after too much to drink with a 
Bush Cheney fleece on, you're gone and you're, you're never coming back again. Well, of course, I mean, that's the normal pattern uh, throughout, uh, throughout uh, institutional life everywhere. And that's changed dramatically. And, and we haven't, we haven't really seen just how much we, and I mean, all of us, how much we have just come to take these things for granted. We don't even recognize them. We, we, we don't even see, I mean, we recognize them, but when we do, it's not like, you know, a, a, a younger version of you would be stunned. And now it's, well, yeah, it's happening again. That is, that is what concerns me Yeah, because I do feel myself getting numb to things that I'm like three years ago, I would have been like, I mean, one, one more example for the audience, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene spoke at Nick Fuentes's conference like where they chanted things and they, mm -hmm. they were there and she was at one point censured and now she's right underneath Kevin McCarthy that and I'm just, we're just used to it that she's just in she's in the public world well and and she and she's an establishment rhino now uh you know she she was just being <laughs> shouted down right. by Laura Loomer and others because she's establishment Steve Bannon says she ought to be primary I mean that that's how the Overton window is shifted Right, right. And so actually, before we go forward, let me read you one excerpt from, from the book that I want you to maybe unpack. And then I have a question about kind of this whole thing. So you write in uh, the first chapter, um, or sorry, in the, in the introduction, you said, one outside perspective concluded, a religion that is responsive to the pressure of the market will end up profoundly fractured with each denomination finding most hateful to God, the sins that least tempt its members, while those sins that are the most popular become redefined and even sanctified. In the end, a market-driven approach to religion gives rise to a market-driven approach to truth, and this development ultimately eviscerated conservative Christianity in the U.S. and left it the possession of hypocrites and hucksters. There was and is enough truth in this to, to sting. When I read that, I thought to myself, holy moly, like, yes, 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 yes. Why unpack that for me? Like, you know, you put it in the book for a reason. It really spoke to me. I was like, yeah, I think this is right on the money. I think a lot of people who are experiencing even this deconstruction phenomena that we're calling it right now, they would read that and go, absolutely one of the reasons why I either left conservative churches or I'm out of the church or I'm more progressive, whatever. But they would cite something like that in maybe less words and not as as well. What are your thoughts on that statement? Like, unpack it for us. Well, I think it's it's like anything else. There are uh, strengths that uh, bring with them uh, dangers, uh, and and one of the strengths in evangelical Christianity is the ability to be in connection with the people, um, and to have an entrepreneurial uh, sense of advancement. Now. That's the reason why uh, you had Baptists and Methodists going out onto the frontier and being able to um, evangelize people and build churches and plant churches. It's it's one of the reasons why the successful missions movements have been those where people are hear an appeal and respond. But the negative side of that uh, is that it can easily become a kind of populism that says, okay, well, what do the people want? 
and let's give them what the uh, let's give them what they want. And when you have a time of um, when you have a time of um, the the kind of situation that we're in right now, then this is this is what you get. So you'll you'll have a lot of people, a lot of so-called uh, elites, who will say, "Well, um, I have to be at the table," so that means that I have to I have to appeal to the people, and then you start to see what the response is. Uh, and what it is that people uh, really respond to, and mm. you just start giving them more of that. And and I think I think that can happen completely unintentionally at one level. Right. It's almost just right. reinforced, and then um, and then you continue with it. And there are lots. Of, I mean, a lot, I mean, the other thing is, you know, you don't. You don't have, and I'm I'm saying this again as a strength that that is a weakness. Um, you don't have bishops in that sort of structure, uh, and I'm not saying there should be. Uh, as a matter of fact, I I don't think there should be because I can just as easily see how that's uh, how that falls apart. But because you don't have that, that means that. Uh, you have an entrepreneurial way of saying what is how is it that I'm going to be um, th that I'm going to build whatever it is that I'm wanting to build, and you can see this in churches there, and I I have seen this just over and over and over again, where you will have faithful uh, pastors who are leading really good, solid congregations. They're they're doing the the best that they can. And somebody will move in down the road who's saying crazy extreme things and starts building this huge crowd because there's a kind of um, – there's a an adrenal charge to, whoa, can you believe he said that? Let's wait and see what he says next. And there's a right. kind of um, – there's a kind of appeal to certainty in everything that can feel like conviction. So it's I mean, it, it's the secularization, again, of the old prophecy conference movement where, you know, people weren't uh, building empires off saying Jesus is coming again and we don't know when. Uh, and, and here are the ways that you – uh, form yourself into a godly Christian as you expectantly wait for him. No. What what builds empires right. is to say, I can tell you exactly where the Soviet Union fits into the book of Ezekiel. You know, that that can, that can do it. And yes. and now we're at a place. <laughs> right. Yeah. By the nobody, book. nobody, <laughs> none of these people know what Ezekiel is uh, or who Ezekiel is. So they're not doing that, but they don't have to. Instead, you can just come in with a a different kind of authority that is they're bad, they're coming to get you. And that works, but it works the same way. Yeah. Jake Knapp is the inventor of the design sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, 
It's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most, brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list. No, that makes sense. I mean, uh, you know, I, as you know, I've been to um, I've been to America Fest by Turning Point. I went to their pastor summit recently and just trying to keep my finger on the pulse. Like what? Obviously, it's it's not a it's not a oh, here's the one thing that that is is causing all this. There's a lot of layers and one layer for sure. I would say at this point, more than even the the more the more like maybe uh, cessationist people or reform people is this um, Pentecostal tradition mm-hmm. that I think is really full of like the prophecy and the spirituality and the, you know, we're fighting demons. That language really underpins a lot of this stuff. And I think, you know, Trump and that kind of Trumpism perspective have capitalized on that to almost have another end of the world is happening unless you know, we have a way out. If you just get Trump elected, like the end of the world will not happen. I think a lot of people maybe have been primed for that kind of thinking. And now it's been become hyper politicized in this like far right corner. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's, it's a, um, you know, often I think that people in more mainstream corners of evangelicalism uh, have always, and I'm not talking about just right now, but have always thought, well, what goes on in Pentecostalism stays in Pentecostalism. And that is rarely the case. I mean, you, you often have things that are happening in one movement that then are replicated in other places and people don't even know where they're coming from. They they just start to become, yes. uh, well, I mean, everybody knows that sort of a, sort of a reaction. Yes. Yeah. Um, in fact, you mentioned in the book at one point uh, early on, you say there's no such thing as the evangelical church. Therefore, we really can't like what are we actually trying to reform? And I think, you know, this maybe gets to the heart of that, where it's like, in one sense, I think you're right. There is no like pope or bishop overseeing the evangelical church. But there is like this network um, formed of of institutions and types of Christian thinking and ways of being that really do cross pollinate, mm-hmm. even if they claim to not like those people oh, over there. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and it's very fascinating to kind of witness how how those networks have been used to disseminate a lot of this stuff way beyond maybe its original or um you know, origin point. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, and, and that's, that's not really unique to Christianity. Um, it's sociologically, that's how it works. There are, uh, there are things that, that look fringe or look, uh, look kind of limited in a certain area. And then before long, they start to become just the, the default. Um, that's the, and the, the problem is not that that happens. The problem is that that happens while we're completely unaware of it and we, we don't see it or recognize it. So let me ask you this then. I'm kind of curious, you know, there's a, a book I have on my shelf called uh, the Bible told them so by J Russell Hawkins, mm-hmm. it's a really good book uh, documents, kind of the segregation issue happening in the, in the, in the deep South with evangelicals back in during those, uh, 
fifties and sixties. One thing he says that really stuck with me was he he mentions that in his research there was this tension between the clergy who wanted to really who wanted to desegregate and then the actual congregants who were like, if you do that, we will destroy your church, physically or or we 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 will just leave. Yeah. Do you see some of that tension happening in its own way now where you know maybe pastors or clergy who are like, man, I just feel like if I say anything the wrong way, I'm just going to have an angry congregation calling me liberal or something like that. Are you seeing that? A- absolutely. Every, everywhere. I mean, I, I, I would be hard pressed if you told me to come up with a list of exceptions to that. I'd be hard pressed to get a list for you. I'll give you the list of who attended the pastor summit. You'll have that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, yeah. But, but I'm, what I'm, what I'm saying is even among Trump supporting pastors, I'm not just talking about just sort of people in, in, in uh, my wing of things. I'm talking about even uh, Trump supporting yeah. pastors who are trying to do what they were called in the ministry to do, uh, to teach people the Bible mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. uh, spiritually disciple them, and who are saying, I, I can't get out of uh, sort of these momentary sort of outrage of the, of the moment uh, sorts of things. And what's really frustrating to a lot of people is that it used to be for at least a lot of people, the way they could avoid that is by just not speaking to those things. And I'm not talking about out of cowardice necessarily. Uh, a lot of people say, okay, that's not what I'm called to do. And I'm not, so I'm going right. to do what I do, which is just preaching the Bible. Well, they're at a point now where uh, that receives a backlash in many contexts. And even some of the people who are, who are trying to, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to play my part uh, in, in this so that I can do the, the other spiritual stuff. I don't approve of that, but I understand what they're trying to do. Uh, even even yeah, they right. are finding out you can't do it because if you don't do it with the requisite emotional temperature, uh, then you're not I- included as well. And so you add to that all of the other strains that are going on, and it's just a really sensitive yes. time. I mean, I, I, you, you made, you made a statement uh, during an NPR interview about, you know, pastors that you, you talk to, or, or even your own experience. I think, you know, of uh, you're just preaching through the Bible, love your enemies. Where'd you, where'd you get the liberal talking point? It kind of went viral. And I remember even before you said that, I was like, yeah, uh, Trump Jr. Um, during a turning point event full of Christians literally yeah. said a year and a half, two years ago, uh, we, you've been told to turn other uh, turn the other cheek, but that's no longer but working. I, say I remember you. seeing that and going, wow, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And I remember watching that and going, wow, like, whoa, okay. I mean, now we're just saying, yeah, maybe Jesus said that, but man, it's impractical now anyway. And I think my question to you as we start kind of landing the plane here is, I know that that we that you said a while ago, maybe this, this isn't the, the new normal, but like, is this the new normal? Like, is this like in 10 years from now, are we going to be having the same conversations? Like, is there going to be a new Trump figure? I mean, is there any way forward from where we currently are? Because, wow, it feels chaotic. It feels it feels a little dark. It feels a little scary for a lot of people. 
What are your thoughts on that? Well, here's where I'm in a a really dark uh, place. So it's kind of off brand. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm really, right. uh, I'm ultimately, uh, hopeful and optimistic, but I am very dark about the possibility, maybe even the probability of, uh, violence over the next several years in, in ways that are unimaginable to us now. Even in a even in a post uh, January sixth uh, world, and w- one of the reasons, that, I mean, there are a couple reasons for that. I mean, some some of it is it this just isn't sustainable. Uh, this sort of um, division and hatred in American life, but then you add to it. I mean, you talk about things that you never would have believed. I mean, I'm in circles all the time behind closed doors with really smart kind of uh, super mainstream people who are talking through what's going to happen if there's civil war. And at one point, I'm like, even just having this conversation where you're worrying about the potential of civil war, we haven't been here uh, before in our lifetimes or in our grandparents' uh, lifetimes. So that, that, concerns me. And you also look at what's happening in the institutions and just look at the denominations. Uh, For instance, you have almost every denomination in a place of fracture and division in ways that are really reminiscent to me of the 1840s and the 1850s, when you had the creation of of all of Mm -hmm. these separate um, denominational structures between North and South, except that we're in a more complicated time where it's not, uh, oh, well, you're either in Kansas or you're in Georgia. It's a lot more complicated than that. So that is, that is worrying, uh, to me. And, uh, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm really uh, concerned about that. On the other hand, I think what's happening is you have, we're in a time of, flux. So it's just like everything else. You you can't see what's on the other side of this. But one of the things that we're seeing is that you're having a shaking up of uh, a lot of these uh, categories. And you're having a lot of people who are getting uh, at the point right now where they're saying, you know, I've been Lot's wife for the last uh, several years. So they're just kind of in a holding pattern thinking, one day we'll get back to the way we are and are now starting to say, okay, well, what can we do? Where can we go? And those people are finding each other. And it's not just one sort of, it's a, it's a myriad of different groupings. And I see that even among uh, a lot of two-time Trump voting uh, evangelical Christians who are saying, I'm really exhausted. And I just don't know that this argument at the family table constantly is worth it uh, to, to go forward. And so I don't know what's on the other side of that, but I think there are some possibilities. I mean, listen, I share your sentiment of I am concerned about violence, frankly, um, at some, you know, rhetoric leads somewhere. Metaphors create realities. Right. And when we're calling people demons and we're calling, 
you know, people vile and gross and disgusting and we have to eradicate them or, you know, types of people you're just like, okay, like this only ends one way if that's how you're talking, you know, and it, it yeah. really concerns me for sure. Um, I think that one of the maybe highlights for me is that I think that, that, there, that there are a lot of people who are willing to start building coalitions that maybe they wouldn't normally build to say, hey, you know, why don't we just shake hands for now and and get back to our a democracy? And then after that, we can go back to arguing. And I think yeah. that's kind of like how dire things feel for me, you know, where I'm just kind of like, you know, whoever I need to talk to, whoever I got to work with to like make sure that at the end of the day, we have a democracy that protects people. And then we can go back to all the problems and how problematic we think we are. But like, I, that's just kind of how severe I see the problem, especially I, I will say I'm biased because I go to these events. But I hear what they say from the pulpit. I hear how they talk. I hear and see how they're mobilizing, you know, to push through certain pieces of legislation or whatever else it could be. And I go, yeah, uh, now is the time to form uh, some kind of other unified front that says you shall not pass, that, <laughs> frankly, that's, you know, because exactly it's, right. it's, it's do or die for me. That's exactly right. And and it's a part of it is what we have to what we have to say, all of us as Americans, if you look at the civil space, whether right, left or center, we have to say we've got some serious right. arguments, but the only way we can have those arguments uh, and fight with each other is if we have a, a an institutional structure and um, a, and a a country, a constitutional order that's maintained. So let's uh, unite for the sake of fighting later. And I think that's, I think a lot more people are actually starting to get that um, really across, across yeah. the spectrum of people who are pro-democracy. Yeah. Well, listen, Russell, I really appreciate your time. Your book is Losing Our Religion, an altar call for evangelical America. Like I said, friends, um, listen, if you're listening to the podcast, you know who Russell is, you know who I are, I am. You know that obviously Russell and I don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but that's okay. Like We're allowed to do that. And if I'm telling you, his book is really good. Like I really enjoyed the book. And I will also tell you this. It makes a great Christmas gift for that parent that maybe you're a little concerned about. You know, maybe you want to try and get through. Well, give them Russell's book. I think I think the strongest part about your book, honestly, Russell, is that you argue your points from a very standard, like, you know, classical evangelical perspective as far as how I grew up, you know? So it's nothing that's new. You're just like, hey, let's just hold this to the same litmus test that we've been trying to hold this stuff to since the beginning, and it doesn't pass. So let's get back to that. And I can work with that. You know, yeah. we can find agreement there. So I really appreciate your book. Um, I know you're online. Do you want to plug anything? You want to you want to plug where you can buy the book or your socials? Feel free. Um, well, I mean, just about you can get the book wherever you uh, get books and uh, you can find us at ChristianityToday.com. Awesome. Russell, again, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your wisdom and for coming on the podcast. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Jake Knapp is the inventor of the design sprint and the New York Times bestselling author of the book Sprint. He's also the co-founder of Character, a venture fund for early stage startups. How and why did you start using Miro? I came from this position of thinking, I don't want to be doing stuff online to thinking now when I do a sprint in person with a company, 
It's like, we're going to use Miro, even though we're all in the same room, because that's a better way for us to get this work done. As an investor, we're basically investing in their ability to solve problems. We're saying, we think this group of people is going to be able to solve a problem in a really great way and create value by doing it. And actually, you need to give people the tools that can help them make decisions, help them collaborate, help them visualize and see things in a different way. And Miro does all those things. So to me, at least as an investor, I'm thinking, give the team the tools that are going to help them think, that are going to make the most, brighten their, their skills as smart folks. And Miro is at the top of that list for me. 